The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Give your attention to God's Word, 2 Samuel. I'm in the middle of, I won't read a longer portion than I need to, but in the middle of the familiar story of David in the deepest and darkest hour of his life, probably, when he had committed a great sin, and God brought him to account for that. This is, of course, when he had committed adultery, and a child was being born. He had conspired for the near murder of the wife, or the husband of Bathsheba, and a child was born. And I pick up with that in Second Samuel chapter 12 at verse 15, actually in the middle of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and He did not listen to us. How can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he understood that the child was dead. David said to the servants, is the child dead? They said, yes, he is dead. David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. When he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when he is dead, you arose and ate food. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And then this word that may seem entirely unrelated, but I hope you'll see a link today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm actually reading in verse 26, not 27. 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing 
things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the Word of God. Father, in these minutes we pray that your Word would speak powerfully and clearly and give us hope for Jesus' sake. Amen. I had my own set of personal thoughts today as I was in this service, and I had actually not even brought these thoughts with me, but when I was listening to what folks had to say, they were washing over me, realizing that it was exactly about 25 years ago that my wife and I, as aunt and uncle of a profoundly special needs child, saw that child leave this earth at the age of six and a half, weighing about 25 or 30 pounds, the size of a toddler. Becky preceded Anthony to where he is today. If you ask any sane person, any person among us, any person on the street, do you think a child who dies is in heaven? Now that's a poll I can guarantee the result on. It's almost impossible for me to imagine anyone saying, oh no, children can't go to heaven. The answer would be, of course. Are you kidding? We're talking about a sweet, innocent child. Of course the child is in heaven, people will say. But I want to probe today and say, do we know what a scriptural basis for that answer is? Because for most people, that question gets answered more on what I would call the sentimental basis. The sentiment of our hearts, the catch in our throats, the ringing emotion that harm should come to a child. And and we certainly want to say, why, if a child dies, only good, only the best that God has could be there for the child. But the question I want to press is, how do you know that? Well, people would say, oh, well. Children are in heaven because they're sweet and innocent. They become little angels. Sorry I'm stepping on your toes, but there's absolutely no scripture anywhere that says any human being ever becomes an angel. That is not a biblical thought, actually. We are people, and the De Bruins are people, who value scripture and its doctrine. So if we are going to have hope today and any kind of joy or comfort, we must know what the scripture teaches. Not sweet sentiment, but solid things that we can stand upon. Hebrews 12.23 describes those who have died with Christ as their Savior and calls them spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's one of my favorite New Testament descriptions of what's after death. Our souls are with Christ. We don't have resurrection bodies yet until Christ returns, but we are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We believe Anthony de Bruin is among the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I'd like to try to tell you biblically why I think that is true. Before I go to the main text of 2 Samuel 12, which I'll get to in just a minute, I would first mention a couple background things, and those are some biblical facts about how children are seen in the eyes of the Lord in the Old Testament. One thing to say is the many different passages that mention 
God as creator seeing us even before our birth. You probably think of Psalm 139. God intimately hovering over the life of David from his very conception. He says in that psalm, you knit me together. I love the language. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God is extolled by David in that psalm for wrapping his whole life in comprehensive care from the beginning on through. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Well, that's who God, the Creator, is in relation to children. Jeremiah's book writes about it, Jeremiah 1. The prophet testifies, he says before, or the Lord is actually speaking, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, ordaining you to be a prophet to the nations. Now, we're not suggesting that everyone can can look back and say, the Lord called me to be an engineer from the womb, or the Lord called me to be a computer software technician from the womb. Jeremiah could say that about his calling as a prophet, but we can certainly say with Jeremiah, the Lord has his call and his claim upon all the children that he makes. Another fact to note that isn't often or always thought about is how the Old Testament speaks on a number of occasions of young children as being in a special moral spiritual category set apart from adults who might be judged for their willful sin. There are numerous examples, but a very good one, a well-known one, is Jonah chapter 4. You remember good old Jonah who didn't want to go to Nineveh. By the way, Jonah's tomb was recently ravaged by the ISIS fighters in Iraq. Did you know that? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. God's Spirit urged him to go, of course, and the Lord spoke by his Spirit to Jonah and said, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern their right hand from their left? What was that about? The children of Nineveh. God looked upon them, and that kind of a a speech or that kind of a phrase is used other times in the Old Testament. God somehow looks upon those who were not yet morally culpable for whatever awful things Nineveh had done that Jonah was so upset about. Now, children, to be sure, are born under the dark shadow of mankind's fall in Eden and the curse of Adam, and they have what we call original sin— And yet it seems that God is at least implying to us, maybe not shouting it at us, but if we're ready to read the clues, he's implying that there are those times, especially early in life, when he looks upon those who are not morally, spiritually, fully culpable in terms of rational rebellion and decisions to assault the Lord and assault his truth. Now this leads some people to talk about a concept of the age of accountability. That's a difficult thing to talk about because we can't pin it down. We can't tell you when it ends. Only the Lord himself knows a moment in a life when suddenly you are now rationally responsible for choosing what is wrong when perhaps six months before you were not. So that is a slippery concept, and yet it does seem to represent something 
that the Lord himself speaks about, those who do not know their right hand from their left and should be viewed as not, in a sense, culpable in the same way as rational adults. All right, those are background points. Now I go to our text in 2 Samuel. And I want you to hear from this text what I read, David's assurance of heavenly reunion with a dead infant son, seven-day-old son. And the great thing of that text it was the end of it. I had to read a bit to get to it so you would understand, but if you'd never heard the text before, the key to it is the great thing that David announced to his servants and those who, who were just kind of amazed at his reaction, you know, and we see it today on TV. You know, we see people in the Middle East mourning and, oh my goodness, you know, we reserved Americans can hardly believe it. How folks in the Middle East just wail and wail and scream when someone has died. You know, those of us who are perhaps English in background believe in the stiff upper lip, right? And we look at that and we say, oh, look at that. That's strange behavior. Well, that's what they expected from David. And he didn't do that. And they said, David, now you're supposed to be wailing and groaning. And he said, oh, no. Oh, no. My son is gone. And I will go to him. But I do not expect him to return to me. I will share eternity with my seven-day-old son who has died. That's a sure statement by a patriarch of Scripture. David, you don't think of perhaps as a prophet, but there he was prophetic. He was prophesying, spending eternity with his one-week-old son. Now, there are some people, by the way, who say, you know, that all they can think of in this story is, boy, is God ever a monster? Why would God punish a little baby for the sin of his father and mother? Why did the baby have to suffer? My answer is the baby did not suffer. The baby was taken into the arms of the good Lord to dwell in eternal bliss and missed all the awful things of life in this world. It was father and mother who did the suffering for their own sin. I will go to him. He will not return to me. David was not just saying, I'll be buried next to him in the cemetery. We've got plots reserved, so there's the king's plot. I'll be there, and he'll be right beside me. That is not what he was talking about. I will go to him meant to their eternal dwelling, the same place, and it was a place that David was talking about in the familiar Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will, you can say it, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's where they expected to be together. Now the question is then, moving rapidly here, can David's hope for his son be a hope that can be generalized for every believer in David's God? May his great composure and peace and hope about spending eternity with an infant child be equally applied to all believing parents who would lose a young child to the grave. Well, I'll turn it around and say I have to challenge someone to show us why it would not apply. 
2 Samuel 12.23 is not an isolated voice of one exceptional godly parent who somehow got this assurance and it was only for him because he was the king of Israel and a patriarch uh, of the great people of God. Surely the Lord gave us this revealed word of truth to comfort us and support our griefs as believers in David's God. The Reformation thinker John Calvin comes off in many people's minds thinking he's some kind of an ogre that probably would be ready to condemn everybody that didn't live or look a certain way. Let me tell you, John Calvin believed this from his reading of Scripture, and he was an astute student of Scripture. He believed that if any infant or child died as an infant or a young child, as, by the way, did his only son that if they died very young, Calvin believed that young death was proof that the child was elect by God's grace because Calvin held that the non-believing reprobate person who would be shut out from heaven had to live long enough to mature and actively take hold of and act out his destructive, rebellious conduct against the Lord God that would ultimately condemn him. You see, he said a child hasn't had a chance to do that. And so that child must be the Lord. That was John Calvin, who you think of perhaps, at least some people do, as some kind of a theological ogre. Calvin said, little children are the Lord's for sure. And he didn't say that because he just had a sentimental notion about so-called sinless innocence. No, he knew that children were born under the curse of original sin and they needed Christ to be their Savior. But he believed that they received a special application of God's grace in Christ. And he did become their Savior, but not through the usual process of a rational profession of faith that we adults are expected to have. Modern Pastor John Piper, very popular man today, agrees completely with Calvin. He comes at it with a little bit different angle, and he writes about Romans chapter 1. Perhaps you know Romans 1. It's the scripture that talks about God's wrath being revealed against mankind since basic truths about God are revealed in the creation and people are without excuse, Paul said there, indicting all of humanity without excuse if they do not recognize God and praise and worship him for who he is. Piper writes this, if a person cannot understand the revelation of God's glory in this world, if he lacks natural capacity to grasp it, then he says Paul can be taken to imply that they will have an excuse at the judgment because God will execute wrath on those who had the capacity to see his glory but refused it. And he says, infants, I believe, do not have this capacity. I believe he's correct. So the hope of David in 2 Samuel 12, 23, ought to be like a shining beacon for a parent. He will not come to me again. I will not spend my life weeping and mourning. Oh, yes, I'll be sad. There'll always be a hollow place there. But I will not spend my life screaming with hopeless grief because he will not come back to me, but I will go to him. This I know. And we say this on the basis of the character of our God. We say, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? 
Of course, the ordinary gospel standard way of salvation is given in places like Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And, and we want our children to profess faith in Christ when they can understand that and call him Lord and trust in him. But if a reasoned, mature decision of the human will to trust in Christ is the only possible way anyone is ever redeemed, then heaven's gate is locked against every young child, every mentally incapacitated person, every miscarried child, every aborted child. Don't have a chance. If that is the truth, I will throw away my Bible because I do not believe it to be true. My God is gracious. My God is compassionate. We confess that about him in the opening of our service today. I quickly want to add something about Jesus' teaching on children in the kingdom. I didn't read any scripture related to this, but these things will come to mind, just a few, two paragraphs worth. Matthew 18 begins with disciples. You remember debating about which of them held the biggest status in the kingdom? Unbelievable that at that point, several years with Jesus, they were arguing about who was going to be the captain of the guard in the eternal kingdom. Who's closest? Who'll be the vice president? Who'll be the prime minister? Who gets to carry Jesus' robe when he goes in triumph? These guys didn't get it even at that point. And Jesus brought a small child. The word is very specific in the Greek. It's a very small child, an infant or a toddler. He put the child before them and he said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of you who are Bible exegetes will tell me that isn't about child salvation. That's about adults being childlike. I agree with you. That's the primary point that's being made there. But here's the other point to consider. Since Jesus was pointing to a little child as the example of what adult faith was supposed to be like, isn't there by logical extension the fact that the children who he is pointing out as being the best exemplars of it must themselves have been members of that kingdom? Would he point to someone who was not part of his kingdom and say, be like that? Would he put his blessing on their heads if they were not a part of his kingdom? Matthew 18.10 has a totally remarkable statement. When Jesus said about those he called the little ones, he said, their angels in heaven always look on the Father's face. You want to get real colloquial? Jesus was saying, don't mess with these little guys because my Father looks at them constantly and he knows them. Matthew 18, 14 makes a strong statement. Jesus said, it is the will of your Father in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. That's about as clear as it can be. Not one of these little ones, if they should die physical death, would eternally perish. It can't be clearer. John Newton, who wrote the last hymn we're going to sing in a few minutes, Amazing Grace, was a theologian too. He wrote about this subject a lot. Here's something he said, quote, I am willing to believe that infants of all nations and kindred without exception who die before they are capable of sinning willfully, who as yet have done nothing in their body for which they must give God a moral account, are included in the election 
of divine grace. That man was a Calvinist to the marrow of his bones. They are included in the election of grace, said Newton. And he went on to say, I assume this might mean that the number of infants historically redeemed by Christ's blood may numerically exceed, think of this, the aggregate of all adult believers. Well, listen, if you talk about all the miscarried children, all the aborted children, all the children throughout the ages who, with terrible, you know, infant mortality rates, families would have five children and two would survive. Yes, you're talking about a vast number of people beheld by Christ. Charles Spurgeon, great champion for Scripture, certainly an evangelist, a man of the gospel, a man who called people to come to Christ and told them there's no hope outside of Christ. Spurgeon said, what Scripture says on this subject may be scant in the matter of text involved, but I speak for many when I say that all infants who die are elect of God and therefore saved. One more, John MacArthur. Many of you know his name today. You've heard him on the radio, read his books. John MacArthur says this as clearly as it can be said. We do not say babies go to heaven because they are sinless, but because God is gracious. All children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability are counted as elect by God's sovereign grace because they are as yet clear of that willful rebellion of unbelief even though they are born under Adam's curse. I stand with these men. I believe they are correct. I believe they have the sense of the word of God. And I believe that our family's little Becky and little Anthony will not just be souls perfected in righteousness at the final day when Christ comes. They will be glorified in their bodies. Perfect bodies, perfect eyes for Anthony to see again. I speak to you ladies. I can know without any doubt there are women here who have miscarried a child. Or those perhaps who have lost a child to death as the De Bruins have. I say to you, I stake my credibility as a scholar of the Scripture that the cumulative evidence of God's Word appears to say that that person you conceived in the image of God is now a living soul praising God in His presence. That person awaits reunion with you one day when they and you are together in glorified bodies. Now, I read from 1 Corinthians 1, and I close with it. It's not unrelated at all. Paul wrote about the amazing way God doesn't accomplish things in this world by using the powerful people, the rich people, the wise people with lots of degrees, the famous people, the celebrities. No, that's not God's way. He brought his son into this world as a helpless infant, in a stable, as weak and lowly and despised as any being could be on the earth at that time. And then in 1 Corinthians, the apostle said that even going more than that, Christ being crucified was going even lower. He became a stumbling block, an act of foolishness. And then he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose 
In other words, very purposefully, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. To shame us theologians who can stand in our pulpit robes and preach. He chose Anthony. I believe in the weakness of Anthony de Bruin's brief life. We saw God's mercy displayed. And by the laughter and the singing that Anthony did so frequently and so joyfully, perhaps we were privileged to hear some of the advanced echoes of what's going on in heaven itself.